Good morning, everybody. Howdy, howdy. Anybody else get kind of stoked when it looks like summer could be on its way? Yeah. So it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, if you're new here, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I have the privilege of teaching this morning. Um, and just to reiterate some of what Angela said, if you're new to the area, you're new to Anthem, we'd love for you to go fill out some information at the Connect table. Uh, our pastoral staff is always down to go grab a cup of coffee and get to know you, hear your story, figure out how we can best connect you to the church body here at Anthem when you're ready for that. So um, this morning we're going to pick back up in our study through the book of Matthew. So if you guys would turn with me to Matthew 23, last week we kind of dipped into the first part of Matthew 23, and this morning we're going to kind of wrap that up, and we've got kind of a harsh series of texts this morning. How many of you guys have ever read through the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes? Uh, pretty, pretty crazy set of uh, passages this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Jesus, we give you this time this morning. God, we know that you are with us. Um, God, on the same token, it feels, uh, again, just surreal that we're gathered here this morning when there's so much turmoil happening in our world, and we're, yet we're gathered here in peace. And I just pray, Jesus, for your peace to be with those who are in just excruciating circumstances right now, God. I pray that your peace be had in this world, God, that you make yourself known to those who um, are far from you right now, Jesus. And we pray you draw near to them. We pray that the world would rally. We pray that the church would be stronger in this season than it's ever been before. God, as we know that this is just sort of the beginning of it all. And I'm just asking Jesus that this morning, even as we dive into your word, that you would use your word to strengthen us. You'd use your word to challenge us, to encourage us, to convict us, God. And we just humbly lay our hearts and our lives before you this morning, God, as we know you're the author and the perfecter of these lives. And yet, Jesus, we know that you know what we need, and I pray that you would meet us in this place this morning, God, and that you would meet the needs of our lives, of our hearts. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Awesome. Everybody good this morning? Okay. You won't be in about 30 minutes after we get through this, no. Uh, so Matthew 23, uh, specifically, we're going to start in... Uh, verses 13, and we'll go through the end. And I'm not going to read it up front because I'm going to read it as we go through it this morning. It's a long passage. So uh, coming out of our text from last week, out of chapter 22, one question I want to ask you this morning, what was it that Jesus was addressing last week as we were talking through the end of 22 into the beginning of 23? What, what, was, what Jesus was addressing was this mindset that had the Pharisees basically believing that, uh, that their role or your role or position um, somehow placed them above those around them. That's what Jesus was addressing, uh, that, that their role sort of elevated them above everybody else. And church history, if you look back, sort of supports this belief. Is you can trace it back through history um, hundreds, if not thousands of leaders in history who have elevated, been elevated by title, been elevated by position, and then used that title or that position to then lord themselves over God's people. And if that goes unchecked for too long, this can sort of, um, it can sort of usurp God himself. 
if that goes unchecked. And so the Pharisees were known to go to the marketplace for the sole purpose of being noticed and commended. Like they wanted people to see them. Last week we talked about the phylactery and the, and, and the fringes from their garments, right? They wanted them long fringes and these huge phylacteries. They wanted people to know that they were religious, that they were these devout people, and they wanted people to see them. And so the, the Pharisees were known to go in the marketplace for the sole purpose of even being noticed. And it, it was a very public reminder to the masses of their status, right? They, 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 want their, they wanted their egos stroked. And so to counter this, just notice in verse 8 that he, he says that we're all brothers, right? That we're all brothers and sisters, meaning we're all equal, that all of us are equal in the family of God. That, that our roles and our titles, though they may be different, um, our importance and our value is not. We, we are one in the Lord. And, and you may be a mom or a dad, and so you may have a role of having oversight in your home, oversight over your kids, but you're equal in your family, and you're equally called to submit to Jesus. And so as Jesus points this out, this is why he ends this section before diving into the woes by saying, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's what we uh, ended with last week. You see, the reason this is sort of like the crescendo chapter in, in the book of Matthew is because Jesus is about to leave. Like, he's about to be on his way to the cross, and he's about to hand off this, this leadership of this new movement, this church, these disciples that are following him. He's about to hand off leadership, this way called the church, to the leadership of his apostles and his disciples. And so they're going to have authority. And so he's teaching his apostles and his disciples in this moment, saying, you need to follow my lead. Like, don't follow the, the practice of these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees. Do not do what they do. You aren't to be served. You're actually a people that are called to serve. Even in leadership, you're not to be on the top. It's not a hierarchy. You're supposed to get down on your hands and feet and wash the feet of those around you. You're supposed to serve those around you. That's true godly leadership. You're to become less than and to make my name great is what Jesus says. And it's not for the sake of applause. It's not for the sake of recognition from others. It's because Jesus' burden is easy, right? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And your call isn't to place burdens on people like they do, is what Jesus said. That you're to bring people to Jesus, and those who lead actually make much of Jesus. They're not making much of themselves. They don't do things for their own glory. They do things for the glory of God. That's why this is so critical. So Jesus sort of moves from this public interaction that he's having uh, with, with, the, with his followers and his disciples in this group setting, and then he moves it more personal, and now he starts calling out the Pharisees and the scribes directly, and he pronounces these seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. So what, what is a woe? Um, when, when this word woe is used, yo, I wanted to say when this word yo is used, um, but this word woe, not yo, has many layers to it. There's like many facets to it. It's this idea of regret, but then also woven into this word woe is compassion, and woven into it is sorrow, and then also woven into it is condemnation, like he's calling them out. 
That's what a woe is. And so the first woe is seen in verse 13. If you guys look, Matthew 23, verse 13. Uh, it'll be on the screens. If you have a paper Bible, open them up, look on your phone. He says this, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I wish I could really have the, the voice inflection that Jesus had when he was saying this, because understand, this is guttural. It's coming like from his heart, like Jesus is upset. And he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What a harsh statement. So, so Jesus is going to call the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites six times in Matthew 23 alone. He's going to refer to them as hypocrites. He's also going to call them blind fools. He's going to call them blind guys. He's going to call them snakes. But what stands out most is this word hypocrite. And so what's, what's a hypocrite? We know that we don't like being called one, but, but what in the world is a hypocrite? What's Jesus talking about? And it's an important question because it's one of the main reasons that people give today for why they don't like the church, right? I don't like the church, I don't like Christians because why? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. It's the reason many people give today. So what in the world is this hypocrite? One of the more popular definitions of a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and then does another. So you say, don't lie, and then you go lie. You say, don't steal, and then you go steal. You say, don't cheat, and then you go cheat, and so on. So you're a hypocrite. And that's an, an entry level, a good, decent entry level definition of a hypocrite. And it's on point with what we read earlier of the scribes and the Pharisees who preach but then they don't practice what they preach, is what Jesus calls them out for. But there's more to hypocrisy to that than that. This term hypocrite is actually taken from the stage, um, it, 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 where, where it was used to like speak of those who were acting, who were in plays, these actors, they were hypocrites. Like in other words, they acted out someone that they were not, right? So if you're on stage and you're playing a doctor, you just play a doctor. You're not actually a doctor. You just are perceived to be a doctor in the play that you're in. And, and that's not who you are in reality. Um, so you're a hypocrite is what Jesus is saying. This hypocrites is the, the Greek word. And so in the context of this chapter alone, Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, for you're actually acting like someone that you really are not. You're basically playing a role, is what Jesus is saying. This is the first woe, and it's sort of this overarching woe leading into these other six to follow it, because the six woes that come from it sort of flow from this one woe, because all the other woes sort of give color and definition to this one woe. But what's really important about this first woe is that it kind of helps us understand why Jesus uses such strong language in Matthew 23. And the reason is this, and please hear this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. The reason is because not only have the scribes and the Pharisees not entered the kingdom of God, like not only have they not received Jesus as the Messiah and will they not enter the kingdom of God, but they keep people from entering it as well. That's, that's the, the, the rub for Jesus. And so as Jesus says elsewhere, if you cause a little one to stumble... 
What's he say? It would be better that a millstone was, was hung around our necks and that you'd be thrown into the ocean, is what Jesus says. That's how serious Jesus takes those who hinder others from entering into his kingdom, which is actually pretty relevant for our day, is it not? The, the epitome of a false teacher in the church today are those who will say to others, peace and safety, peace and safety, when there's actually no peace and safety. And then they, they, they give people false assurance of their salvation. And that should cause us to tremble a little bit. And so that's why this first woe is so overarching with regards to these other six. Because everything flows from it, right? This group of people, ironically, they did this. Like they kept others from entering the kingdom by calling people to God. They used God as the ploy, but they were actually keeping them from the kingdom. And what they did was they only focused on their, their, their zealousness for keeping these external laws, like making sure that they did, they checked all the boxes, they did all the right things. So they had this outward righteousness of sorts that had no connection with any sort of inward transformation. And so to be more pointed, Jesus the Christ, their Messiah, had been with them for three years. And not only did they oppose Jesus, but they actually sought to keep others from him. That infuriates Jesus. The second woe, verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. How would you guys like that one? <laughs> this word proselyte is another word for convert. But oftentimes we in the Western church, we hear convert. We think of somebody who raised their hand at a gathering to accept Jesus Christ into their life. But a proselyte, as it's referred to here, was actually a Gentile, a non-Jew, who converts to Judaism. And the only way for them to do so is to be circumcised baptized, to offer a burnt offering sacrifice in the temple, and to begin to live under the Jewish law. So if you think, you know, raising your hand sounds easy, like right now, like it's much easier to say, I want to accept Jesus than go through the process of circumcision and baptism and offering a burnt sacrifice and then living under 613 Jewish laws. Like what a crazy thing. And so th these scribes and these Pharisees were super committed to seeing this take place. They wanted to see people that were not Jew convert to Judaism. And so they were committed to that. And so history says that there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Israel total at this time. 6,000. Saul, who we know about, who later becomes Paul, is this self-described Pharisee of Pharisees, is how he refers to himself, before coming to Jesus. And you have to wonder, in this moment, is Paul standing in the crowd listening to Jesus saying this? Is he one of them that's hearing Jesus talk about this? Like, you have to run, what a crazy thought. Um, but this is the time of the Passover. Everybody's come to Jerusalem. This whole scene is taking place in the temple. They certainly want to get rid of Jesus. And it'd just be kind of a trip to think of the fact that Paul was actually at this place listening to Jesus share these woes. But the question when you look at the second woe is, why would a proselyte be twice a child of hell? 
What does that mean? And I kind of think it's because nobody's more passionate than a new convert, right? Somebody who just recently came into faith, like is so fired up, they're so pumped. There's nobody more difficult to change their mind than somebody who's a brand new convert because they're so convinced. And I also think that Jesus is using this verbiage like this to emphasize how serious he is about people that lead others astray. That he takes that seriously. And so to sum up this woe, number two, Jesus is saying, woe to you who would do anything, go anywhere to make a convert, but yet what you don't realize is that you're converting them to something that is not true. You're not converting them to the truth. You're converting them to rules and regulations. You're converting them to Judaism. But yet what you don't realize, is, again, is that you're not converting them to something true. And so you're leading them away from the kingdom that Jesus was preaching and the way that Jesus was modeling. And so woe to you for leading them astray, away from my kingdom and away from me. The third woe, verse 16, he says, woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, He's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So what the heck is this one? We've actually seen Jesus do a bit of this before. And what you need to know historically is that over the 200 years or so, uh, of the existence of these scribes and, and these Pharisees, up to this point, they had created this really clever list of, of rules and regulations and customs that exempted them from having to do any of it, but they would impose those upon everybody else. Like, in their minds at least, they were exempt from them because of their title and their position. They were exempt from remaining faithful to what it is that they said. And so if they swore by one thing that was sort of a lesser thing and not the other thing that was some sort of a greater thing, then they wouldn't be bound by what they swore to. And so swear by the altar and not the gift on it, and you're good. And that's one example that Jesus highlights here. And as I said, Jesus highlights this practice in other places. Like going back to the Sermon on the Mount, you read this in Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall, never, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or one hair black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, comes from the evil one. So in contrast to this, followers of God are supposed to be a people of truth. 
like followers of God, we're supposed to be a people of authenticity. We're supposed to be a people of integrity, not a people who live life based on technicalities. That's not what God has called us to. Not people that live with our fingers crossed behind our backs, right? Like, uh, you know, I say one thing, but I'm actually thinking another. Like I'm holding on to something myself that I'm not willing to surrender. Uh, One commentator says this, a person who lives in moment-by-moment accountability to the presence of the living God will need only to give a simple yes or no as a binding oath. The scribes and the Pharisees did not. It was this hypocrisy that allowed the Pharisees to place heavy burdens on others while not carrying them out on their own. That's what Jesus is pushing back against. Woe number four, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, and listen to the statement, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Anybody want to make sense of that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul, um, Paul says, what do we have that we did not receive, is what Paul says. Like, what did we have that wasn't a gift? Like, it's this rhetorical question that that Paul's asking. And the answer is nothing at all, because everything actually comes from God. And the Pharisees, interestingly enough, they actually understood this. They got this. They actually believed this. And so when they were harvesting their gardens and harvest time came and they took their bundles of produce and, and they tithed from them, like even down to their spices, they would tithe their from their dill and their mint and their cumin. Like, not just the big stuff like corn and wheat, but they would tithe from every little thing. They gave 10% of it. They, They did this. They were faithful in this. And you know what Jesus says here? Is Jesus sort of commends them for it, right? He doesn't condemn them for it. He can, he commends them for it. And what he, what he says is that they did so, they did these things while neglecting the weightier things. They were faithful with these little things, but they neglected the weightier matters, like bringing justice to those who were wronged, like like mercy to those who have done wrong, faithfulness to those who have turned their back on the faith. Like you've written off all of those things, but yet you still brought your 10% of cumin and dill and mint. And so Jesus illustrates this in verse 24 when he says, and this illustration is awesome. He says, you're straining out a gnat, out gnats, while you're eating a camel, is what Jesus says. And what does he mean? First of all, you need to know you, you couldn't eat either of these according to Jewish law, right? Their dietary restrictions would not allow them to eat insects, so they couldn't eat a gnat, and they couldn't eat hooved animals, and so they weren't allowed to eat camels, So to ensure that they didn't eat any gnats, what they would do is they would strain their drinks before they drank them. They'd put a strainer over it, they'd pour their wine through a strainer so that all the insects, the gnats, whatever it is, would be strained out and they would get something pure so that they didn't actually swallow a gnat within their drink. And what Jesus is saying to them is that you guys are straining gnats, like you're following through with these little things, you're straining the gnats, 
while you're eating a camel. <laughs> like you're literally doing two things you shouldn't, like you're, you're trying hard with the little things, right, to, to follow every jot and tittle, but then you're pounding a camel, like you're gnawing on a camel while you're straining the gnat. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Anybody eaten a camel lately? Is there anything big in your life right now that you've been putting off? Something maybe that you sense or that you know God's calling you to, but maybe you're exempting yourself from it by way of straining out the gnats in your life. Does that analogy make sense to any of us? If you come to Anthem this morning and you're ready to offer your gift at the altar, knowing full well in the back of your mind that there's somebody that you need to make right with, then maybe we're actually doing this. Like we're straining the gnats and gnawing on camels as well because we're not following through with the weightier things that Jesus calls us to. I, I think there are so many things in life like this for us. Like we uphold our Christian values in some areas of our life while we literally forgo the weightier things in Jesus' eyes, like loving our neighbor as ourselves, like loving our wives as Christ loves his church. The list can go on and on, but I I read my Bible every day and, and I give generously to the church, like I give of my tithe, I pray before all my meals, I attend Bible studies on the regular, yet you can be non-existent as a parent to your children. Yet you can hold grudges against people that hurt you and not offer them the forgiveness that has been offered to you. Yet you can never establish your own intimacy with the Lord in your life because you're so focused on following through with the little things. You're straining out the gnats, but you have yet to learn to draw near to the Lord yourself, to trust him completely with your life, to give him everything. But yet we follow the rules. I want to move on to woes five and six together. If you look at 25 to 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, that the outside clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What would you rather drink from? Like a beautifully decorated cup that's filthy on the inside? Or a gnarly old dill pickle jar that's been cleaned really well that you can now drink from? Like, it's pretty obvious. You're gonna drink from the thing that's clean on the inside. You're not gonna choose to drink from the beautiful cup that looks gnarly on the inside. You're gonna choose the one that's actually been washed well. And these two woes, they're like the, the epitome of, of hypocrisy. Like Jesus is saying to them, you're an actor. You're attempting to portray something that you are not. You're presenting yourself as fine china. But inside, there's just a bunch of sludge. Like you're, you're good-looking tombs. Like, but do you know what lays under the tombs? Dead man's bones. 
doesn't matter how great the tomb looks, like those dead men's bones laying underneath it. And Jesus says to him, that's what you are. But isn't that what Christianity is at times? For us, like, isn't that what all religions are? Like, it basically boils down to sin avoidance and, and guilt management. Isn't that essentially what all religions call us to? Isn't that the point of it all, just to get, get to the point where we look good on the outside? Like, that seems to be what we've made of it. And the answer is no. That, like, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, Christianity is about an internal change that's only realized by the way of Jesus. It's about transformation on the inside, this internal change that's expressed in an outward life of worship and a life of adoration, a life of intimacy with our Lord. That's what Christianity is. Like, it's worship and it's adoration that, that are prompted by this love for the one who changed us, the one who cleaned the inside out. Christianity isn't about the do's and the don'ts. It's not about the lists and the straining the gnats, right? But it's about this life lived, this life lived in joy because of what Jesus has done. Like, that's Christianity. And Christians aren't fine china. I don't know about you, but, you know, the Bible refers to believers as jars of clay. Like, we're all actually pretty jacked up people that are breaking down daily, and if you don't believe me, wait till you turn 40, right? Because I feel it on a daily basis that this body is daily breaking down. But daily, it's being renewed on the inside. The outward is breaking down. I am jacked up. I have my issues. But the inside is being renewed by a really, really good God through his son, Jesus. This might be like a really stupid illustration, but I'm going to share it anyways. And um, you guys are all going to think I, I just love coffee and candy. So um, anybody in here like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups? Yes. Okay. If there's a candy, that's my go-to candy, right? This is like the candy of all candies. This is the candy that... You know, when, you're, when you send your kids out to go trick-or-treating, you say things like, you can as long as you bring me back some of those Reese's, you know what I mean? This is the candy that you steal from your kids' Halloween uh, baskets, whatever they are, whatever you call them, pumpkins, whatever. Um, these are the candies that you make your kids tie back to you because you allowed them to go, right? It's, it's a biblical principle. I will let you do this if you give me 10% of the Reese's. But the interesting thing about Reese's is, like, those cups look so good on the outside, don't they? Like, you look at them, you're like, that chocolate looks spectacular. It's amazing. And what you realize when you bite into it is, like, it's even better once you hit the middle, isn't it? <laughs> it's like the mix of the peanut butter and the chocolate. Like, we're all, our mouths are watering right now. We're like, oh. Like, some of you, like, have you ever had the bite-sized little Reese's peanut butter cups? Some of you are like, I don't eat big peanut butter cups because I didn't just save the calories, but yeah, you pound like 30 of the bite-sized ones, you know? <laughs> like, there's something about peanut butter cups. Christianity, okay? There's the tie to Jesus. Is that we look super good on the outside, but we aren't perfect. We, we aren't. Like, I'm as far perfect as the next guy. 
But yet, there is this call in Scripture to be a people that are set apart. Like, we actually are different than the rest of civilization, but it's to be this expression of the goodness inside that's actually the most precious part about us as followers of Jesus. That the living God literally lives within you and I. Like, how amazing is that? Like, the, the living God resides in us, having completely changed us. And so what's inside actually matters. Like, when they pierced the body of the crucified Jesus, what poured out from the inside? The blood that bought us. We're going to take communion in a bit, and we're going to remember that. Like, what poured forth was the blood that bought you and I. And what poured forth was, was the water of the word that actually made, cleansed our flesh. And Anthem, I, I want to remind you this morning that what's on the inside actually matters most. In kingdom terms, it's what matters most. That's Christianity. It's not like other religions. It's, it's all about what Jesus has done for us. Like, one last comment on these two woes. It does stand out a little bit that, that Jesus mentions that what, re, what, what reveals what's on the inside of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you notice in verse 25, um, he, he mentions that what reveals what's on the inside is greed and self-indulgence. And, and I wonder, as I was reading through this, like, how do we measure ours? Like, how do we measure that in us? Like, oftentimes you see Paul, when, when he writes his letters, he, he writes these lists of sins, and, and then he says, like, if one practices these, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and the church through history has, like, highlighted a couple of these, but it seems that greed, which Paul mentions a ton, gets missed out. Like, Paul says that if our life is marked by greed, we've deceived ourselves in thinking that we're actually followers of Jesus. So how do you and I measure our greed? How do we measure that? How do we measure our self-indulgence in this life? Especially when we live in one of the fastest growing cities in the country, the most expensive places to live, and the most beautiful place. How do we measure that for you and I? How do we measure that? When does the need for more actually become greed in our life? When does a little me time turn into self-indulgence for you and I? When does window shopping turn into covetousness? When does alone time turn into selfishness? Which then leads us to this last woe that Jesus shares. Verse 29, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. How many of you said things like, I'll never do what my parents did, right? I'll never repeat that stuff. And then your kids start doing it, and you're like, what in the world? Like, how did that happen? He goes on, verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. 
from the righteous, uh, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So we need to wrap up. But, um, some archaeological discoveries have, have revealed that there's these beautiful and ornate tombs that were built in honor of some of Israel's most esteemed figures in history. If you've ever been to Israel, you've seen these tombs. They're amazing. Like, some of them just sit right outside the city walls, and you stand in them, and you're like, this is absolutely nuts. Like, it must have taken so much time to build this map. It doesn't look like a tomb. It looks like a, like a fortress. And some of them, prophets, these tombs were prophets that were literally killed by their own people. And that's what Jesus is referring to here, right? It, like, but as they, that generation, that Jesus is speaking to, build these monuments, and they, they, they arrogantly basically declares, they build these massive monuments that we wouldn't have taken part with our forefathers we wouldn't have done what they did. Like, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like our forefathers killed the prophets. But what's the problem? The problem is, is that as they're saying this, they're literally making plans to kill Jesus. They're literally going to execute the one that stands before him, the Messiah. They rejected John the Baptist. That was a problem as well. And then in a few short months after this, they're actually going to martyr Stephen. They're going to kill Stephen. And even after, like, Stephen gives this, like, rundown of their history, it's this final woe right here that Jesus sort of culminates the entirety of the Jewish people's history by referring to the Old Testament, the martyr Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, and to Zechariah, who's the last recorded martyr in the Jewish Bible, and you basically get these bookends. Like, that's the span of their history. Like, you did all this. Little do they know that they're about to repeat it, and it's about to happen again. And Anthem, like, one of the things I was thinking about this week is that they were building tombs to honor these dead prophets while basically preparing to murder the living Messiah, Jesus the Christ, which takes us full circle back to that first woe, and then it reminds us that, that they'll actually lead the crowds to follow suit. Like, there's actually going to be people that turn on Jesus and come after him, that they lead down that path to do the same exact thing, to repeat the pattern over again. And in Matthew 27, it says, um, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And then Pilate comes before the crowds and says, I'm washing my hands of the blood of this man, Jesus. And this is what they say in response. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And then we get into these last three verses. And I know these seven woes, like, they seem heavy. It's like, bam, 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 bam. But then you get to these last three verses and you sort of move from this like personal address that Jesus is giving to the scribes and the Pharisees to this sort of prophetic window that Jesus gives in these last three verses. And he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Anybody like Johnny Cash? Nice little Johnny Cash reference there. Anybody like Michael W. Smith? We got a little Michael W. Smith there. So here's Jesus' last public address, and he, the, uh, addressing these crowds in, in Matthew's gospel. Next week we get to start Matthew 24, and we'll see that this city, Jerusalem, and, and its leadership, like Jesus says, are going to have this gnarly ending. But, but that's not the end of all things. That's just the end of this, right? And with its end, it actually ushers in something new, which sort of culminates in Jesus' return, where the entirety of the, the cosmos like, will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And so with this, Jesus ends his public ministry as we wrap this up. And I want to leave you with this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um, I recognize like going into a chapter like this that, that none of us like to think of ourselves as Pharisees, right? I get it. The, the Pharisees we know uh, are, are the bad guys in the Bible. And so if we lived at the time of, the Christ, of Christ, we wouldn't be the bad guys, right? We wouldn't be the Pharisees. We'd be anybody else but them. And besides, the majority of us, I think, in this room today would confess, profess to follow Jesus. And we would love nothing more than having others follow Jesus too. And so I understand that there's a stark difference between the Pharisees and their hearts and you and I and our hearts. Like we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But you have to notice the similarities in this. You have to. You have to see these. I mean, if you're here today and you think that your good works will actually merit your salvation, like will earn you something in God's eyes, then you're following the Pharisees' lead. And there's more. Like, don't we all assume the role of an actor at times? Anybody else, like, honest enough to say there's definitely times and seasons where we assume, assume that role? Don't, don't we attempt to present someone externally that isn't actually the full representation of who we are on the inside? Don't we all do that at some point in our lives? And even when we're honest, like, aren't there times when, when we've stopped short of being entirely transparent, even to the people that are closest to us, where we put on a facade and we act, we become hypocrites, we, we fall prey to, the, to, to, to play in, in this role that we want others to believe um, is who we actually are. And, and we fall prey to that. And, and again, I, I agree that we may not be all-out Pharisees, but aren't there times when we do things for self-glory and self-glory alone in our lives? Like even godly things. Don't, don't we love the glory that comes from man more than we would care to admit? And sometimes, even more than the glory that comes from God himself, doesn't self-promotion motivate us more than we would actually let on? 
Like, don't we love titles? Don't we love accolades? Don't we love applause? Don't we sometimes even use our titles to usurp God's authority by holding our titles and our positions over God's people? And what about playing games with God? Have you ever played games that allowed you to get out of a prior commitment because something better came along? Has your yes always been yes? Has your no always been no? And then going back to this camel and this gnat analogy, have you ever majored in the minors in your life? Have you ever majored in the minors and felt okay about it? And I've already asked these questions about greed and self-indulgence, but what about like a superficial identity that's totally man-made? We do this. And is there a chance that that we show off um, this outer appearance while the sludge and the deadness is what actually lurks on the inside of us, but we would not want anybody to ever see that? And maybe the scariest question of it all, and I'll end with this, is has your life or the words you've said ever drawn people away from Jesus? Has it ever pulled people away from his kingdom? Like, have you ever gotten in the way of Jesus in somebody else's life? Have you ever caused a little one to stumble? And when I go through these questions for myself, I'll be radically honest with you guys. I go, yes, 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 yes. Like, I've done these things. I'm doing these things, you know, like I'm guilty of these things. And I love Jesus. But I notice a lot of Pharisee in myself when I go through these passages. And Jesus actually knows about all of it, doesn't he? Because he actually sees what's going on on the inside. And so there's no point in, in like some feeble attempt to try to hide it from Jesus as hard as I may try in my life or to hide it from you guys. But what I also know of Jesus and what I hold on to tightly is this, is that he doesn't only know about it, but he actually came to save you from it. That's not like a kick to the face. I don't know what is. He doesn't just know about what's going on on the inside. He actually gave his life to save you from that thing because that thing will eat you alive. He came to save us. And so I I don't think there's a better way to end our time together this morning than with this awesome word that's declared to this Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to him like in the cover of darkness. He comes to Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to good old Nick. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, despite all the crud in their life, despite their hypocrisy, despite their greed, despite their self-indulgence, despite their acting, in spite of all of that stuff, if you cast your eyes on Jesus, if you believe in Jesus and you receive Jesus, what does the Bible promise us? You will not the good news, isn't it? That we all have a little Pharisee in us. Jesus came to save us from the Pharisee within us, to redeem us back to himself. And it's such a sweet verse that I know all of you guys have heard, but I want you to hold on to that this morning, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Would you guys stand with me?
I'm going to invite one of our elders to come up here, and um, we're going to partake of communion together. So let me pray for us, and then I'll, I'll hand the mic over to Henry. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the weight that it carries. We thank you, Jesus, that as we sort of align our lives with your word, that we're challenged by it, that we see the discrepancies in our own life, Lord, that we're actually called to something, to be renewed, redeemed, to be saved, to be transformed by you, Jesus. And I know there's a lot of people in this room, God, and there's a lot of people in this room who when I talk about the outside looking beautiful and the inside being full of crud, they, re they resonate this morning. They've tried hard to put on the mask. They've tried hard to make themselves look way better than they actually are. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd loosen the grip of the enemy on those lives, that they would realize, God, that in order for us to be saved, we come before you repentant, God, with everything that we've done, knowing that we ask for forgiveness, we lay it down at your altar. We ask you to come to change us, transform us, to renew us, to save us to yourself, Jesus, for eternity. And so I pray for them this morning, God, if there's those of us that have struggled with these things, are struggling with these things, that this morning we would know that we know that we know that it's okay for us to be imperfect on the outside and yet be being renewed on the end. And so I pray your blessing upon your church, and as we turn our hearts and our attention towards communion this morning, God, I pray that this morning the reality of what you did for us would just sink into deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, 